This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm Lori Messing McGarry, and today I'm interviewing Julie Langsdorf, author of White Elephant. So the person who lived in the community fished it out of the trash can and then yelled at the person walking the dog and said, we don't do that in our neighborhood. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. You're listening to Real Fiction. Real Fiction is a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. We also cover the craft of writing and the path to publishing. In Julie Langsdorf's debut novel, White Elephant, the sounds of construction cut through a quiet Washington, D.C. suburb. Trees are sacrificed, views are blocked, privacy is compromised. Vintage homes built from Sears catalog kits in the early 20th century struggle to survive the modern shift to McMansions. The novel asks the questions, what should a neighborhood look like, and where is the balance between preservation and progress? Particularly remarkable is the timing of this novel's release. The author couldn't have known that Amazon would announce the arrival of a headquarters in the same metropolitan area where the story is set. Julie Langsdorf lives in Washington, D.C. and is the recipient of several arts grants, the New York Times, USA Today, Los Angeles Times, and Washington Post have featured White Elephant as a most anticipated book of 2019. Joining us in the studio to talk about her debut novel is Julie Langsdorf. Welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So in the novel, you put the reader in the heads of longtime residents of fictional Willard Park and a real estate developer who builds a massive house that becomes known as White Elephant. Can we talk about the timing of your novel? It was published as Amazon announced the headquarters in Arlington, literally four miles from where we're sitting. And suddenly the issues of neighborhood preservation, diversity, affordability are debated with fresh intensity. How did you pull this off? I attribute it to fairy dust, frankly. I wrote this book in, um, I started writing it in 2005 and finished it in 2008. So it's really a long time ago now. I tried to sell it as the bottom was falling out of the market. So I assumed that the time for the book had come and gone. And I put it away for many years. I would occasionally take it out and take a look at it. And then in um, the spring of 2017, I took a look at it again and did some revisions because the political and economic climate had changed so much, and it suddenly seemed like a book for our times again. When you submitted this book, um, did you go out to a number of agents, or did you have someone in mind that you thought would connect with the story? I researched my agents to make sure that it was somebody that the book was up their alley. So when I sent it out last fall, in the fall of 2017, it was to several agents that published similar books. So you said you started writing in 2005, finished in 2008, and 2017 was the was the moment when it seemed right. Um, did I mean, do you think that um, that taught you anything as, as a writer? 
about perseverance and, and just being patient and accepting the serendipities of the timing of the publishing world? All of those things. Yeah, I think you just yeah. have to, you can't really, if you give up, if you, you people can give up much too soon. And I really didn't think this would ever happen. So the fact that it did is just miraculous to me, and I'm so thrilled. Well, I think it really inspires a lot of writers to to hear about this. And um, it was the subject of a feature um, that the Washington Post conducted on you. And um, and we should also mention that your 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 novel was just published in March, at the end of March, and you had a um, an event at Politics and Prose. It was standing room only. And um, I was fortunate enough to be there. And a lot of the questions had to do with the timing of the publication. And they want, they just wanted to know how you did it. And I, so I think that element is really inspiring to writers. So your message is don't give up. Be the little engine that could. I've been writing for 30 years. And this was my first real success. I've had smaller successes, but this is the big one. Yeah, this is a big one. And so let's get back to the story. Uh, when I was reading it, I... I tried to guess if the fictional neighborhood of Willard Park was actually in real life, like a Cleveland Park or Tacoma Park. And then I read that it actually has some some similarities to Kensington, Maryland, where you grow up. Is is that the sub, is that the point of inspiration for you? It, several Maryland towns are the inspiration, and it does certainly have elements of Kensington. There's a children's library in Kensington, and there's a Labor Day parade, and I lived there since I was two years old, and my mother still lives there. So it's a really, it's a sweet place to grow up. And a lot of families live there because it is a place that children can go to the park and walk down the sidewalks. It feels like a safe place. There were other towns also, um, including Garrett Park, which has a similar cafe Hmm. and post office. Um, In the book, I have a character named Lucy who has a cafe at the post office. It really felt like it could be anywhere. In the book, nostalgia and architectural preservation, they're strong themes. And one character in particular, Allison, is a photographer, and she documents the vintage Sears homes in her neighborhood. And she actually lives in one. And what I found is that you cleverly use this slice of Americana to push the story forward. So for anyone unaware of what a Sears house is. Can you walk us through this history a little bit? Sure. I I recently learned Sears houses are the most famous, but there are there were many of these companies and Sears started in the late 19th century. People could go to the showrooms and choose which house models they had. And they are wonderful names. Like there's the Cinderella and the Hollywood and the Monticello. And they have mm-hmm. drawings of the houses with trees and gardens. And they just look like the perfect place to live. There were houses. Some of them were vacation cottages and some were really stately homes. So there was a really big range. You ordered your house down to the doorknobs and nails and they would deliver it by train. And they would deliver things as you were ready to use them. And apparently they weren't that difficult to put together. They weren't unique architectural designs. They were more designs that were popular in America. And they stopped, Sears stopped in the catalog in um, 1940. It's around the war. I went around and looked at some 
houses in Tacoma Park with a realtor in the area who specializes in kit houses, we were trying to determine whether it was an actual Sears kit house or whether it was just one that was similar. And she took measurements, so how how long across the portico was and different things in the house and determined that it was not actually a kit house, although it was similar. So she's able to do a forensic analysis with measurements and assess the true the true nature of a home. Exactly. And were Sears homes at that time, they were kind of, there was plenty of space in between the homes, right? They didn't take up the entire lot. There was, there was, there was place as you describe for trees, landscaping. This, the aesthetics were different gardening, right. from houses. Even the larger homes had property around them. Which is something that you talk about in the book. We're losing that space between neighbors. The, the lots are being taken up by larger footprints. And that kind of, that kind of uh, feeling that we had a place to our own is, is dissolving with these McMansions that are being built. I think with the McMansions, it's more of an interior space of your own. I recently learned that one of the most vocal proponents of neighborhood preservation in Arlington, he's actually an elected member of the Arlington County Board, uh, lives in a Sears home, not far from here. I have to go get him this book? We have to get him a copy (laughs) of this book. And it struck me that now anyone running for local office in Arlington or in the entire metro area will need to um, address these issues of affordability and diversity in a new, fresh way. And I and I and I think you're you're actually pointing out that there's so much technical um, debate behind these issues. And in the book, you've set up examples of the housing tensions by getting into issues like tree canopy and soil permeability, things I didn't think about. Um, But how did you research this? Did you talk to experts on the subjects? Did you go to county board hearings, municipal hearings? How did you learn about this? At the time, when I started writing it, there were articles in the newspaper about neighborhoods that were dealing with this. So I actually went to town halls and I looked hmm. at old records of meetings to see what the arguments were, what people were saying, why they didn't want the houses to be there. And certain things came up again and again. In the story, there is a proposed moratorium on building new McMansions. But even if it passed, they, it was only it was just temporary. And and I was thinking about this so as communities, we're kind of stuck with the tug and pull of construction, developers are always going to find a way to get around the, the legal avenues, environmental problems. And so we're always going to have this ongoing reflection of where we live and how we live. Um, and there was a, a particular thing you do in the story. I love the role that trees play in the story because for me, it felt a little bit like a metaphor. We can almost feel ourselves being uprooted even if we're not moving, because the trees are coming down, they're they're changing the the complexion of our neighborhood is changing. Can you talk a little bit about the trees in the book and what that, how that framed up the story? Well, the story begins with the developer who lives in a very large home that he built, cutting down the tree of his next door neighbors, Allison and Ted Miller. Ted grew up in this small town. 
and they planted this tree, a red maple, for their daughter when she was born, and she's 12 now. So that is sort of the the spark of the whole book. And after that, trees really become an issue. The reason that Nick cuts down this tree is that he's clearing the property around one of his McMansions to try to sell it. So he's really cutting down all of the trees on his property. So he doesn't really mean to cut down the valuable tree of his neighbors, but he's showing off for Allison, Ted's wife. In that vein, we reach a point in the story when one of the main characters, Allison, becomes involved with a developer, and you've named him. His name is Nick Cox in the story. He's tearing down these beloved Sears homes to build his empire and fund lavish aspirations. And when I was reading the story, the character of Allison is so well drawn that the conflicted um, feelings come out. And I could feel my own conflicted feelings about neighborhood change coming through. For example, I dread traffic. I, I hate the look of new builds. But at the same time, I'm wondering, well, maybe my property value will skyrocket so much I can fund a retirement in France. So she's caught up in these conflicted feelings. Um, But in your words, what is fueling this romantic connection between Allison and the developer? Is there something missing from her tidy life when he rolls into town? There is something missing, um, which... I'm not going to reveal what exactly is missing, but it's pretty quickly revealed. But she, so she and Nick are in kind of this Romeo and Juliet situation. And they're not the only ones in the neighborhood. There's actually several situations between the Millers and the Coxes. The two daughters are attracted to one another as friends, and even the dogs are attracted to each other. So they should be arch rivals, but there's a lot of conflicting feelings between the families. Um, Can you talk about the the process of creating complex characters and did your, I mean, and and as you were creating them, did your perspective about neighbors and community change as they became real on the page? One of the things I've tried to do with all of them is really make them characters that have good sides and bad sides. So even the characters that in the beginning you might think, oh, I really don't like this person. I hope by the end you will think, well, I can understand them. I might not agree with them, but I understand where they're coming from. We all have great things. We all have kind of lousy things. And I really try to make my characters like that also. I want them all to be relatable. You don't have to love them, but I want you to be able to relate to them, at least to enough of them that you're interested in what's going on with them. I I wanted to ask you about um, the fact that you decided to write your first novel in multiple points of view. Um, For many writers, that's a difficult thing to do. And in a first novel, it's considered very ambitious. Is this just your natural writing style? Or did you you always plan to do it this way? So this isn't the first. I've written other novels that aren't... um, or that are still in the drawer. But I I started out writing from multiple point of view. I love to be able to dip into people's heads. I love to explore the ways that we have difficulty communicating. So in my real life, I can only know what's going on in my head and guess at what's going on in everyone else's heads. But in my books, I can really see what's going on. I can see where people fail to convey what they're really trying to convey. And I think that we do that both with the people we love, as well as the people that we just abhor. Which character was the easiest to write? 
And which character was the most difficult to write? Terrence is very similar to my younger brother who has developmental disabilities. And I found it very natural to write him. He, the character is a lot like my brother, very lovable and wise in his own way. Talk about that character in a min- for a moment and uh, how it plays out in the novel. So Ted and um, Terrence have lived there their entire lives. They're twins. And Ted lives in the family home that they grew up in. And Terrence lives in a group home with some other men. And he works at a nursing home. Ted wants to protect the neighborhood and keep it as it was for Terrence because Terrence has trouble with change. So at least he purports to be doing that. It's a little bit questionable who he's really saving the neighborhood for, but he claims that it's for his brother's sake. Shifting gears a bit, the psychology of resentment between neighbors was something I thought about when reading White Elephant, and I I keep thinking about it, and I, I wonder if the resentment between neighbors, and I'm thinking about my own neighbors as, and I, as I ask you this question, is it more about the fear of change or is it the act of tearing down a home, saying to a neighbor, this lifestyle isn't good enough for me. I'm going to put up a new home that's bigger and better and reflects my vision. Wh- where do you think the balance between the resentment comes from? I think that in this book, when Nick Cox moves into the neighborhood, I don't think it is with the intent of shaming his neighbors. I think that he comes in thinking, if you had money, you would put up a big new house. He doesn't stop to take the temperature of the neighborhood. He just comes, he actually literally comes in with a bulldozer in the book he has a he has an excavator but it's a kind of a bulldozer he bulldozes in so instead of getting to know the people in the neighborhood to see what the community is all about he has an assumption that his way of living is the best way of living and everyone will want that so it's more it's a it's a boorishness it's a selfishness and perhaps if there were a conversation compromises could be made. Maybe there wouldn't need to be a moratorium to discuss that. Maybe if the neighbors got to know each other and to discuss what was coming up, they could have avoided some of the issues. And that really sets the stage for a series of passive-aggressive acts in this novel that become progressively more aggressive. And they are, um, I think for anyone who has lived through construction, cathartic and hilarious. But I'd like you to read a short passage from your book um, that kind of gets to this. Would you mind reading that? I'm going to read a section. This is coming on Thanksgiving. Ted and Terrence are outside at night looking for tree damage in the neighborhood. There's a whole tree damage theme. Lucy, whom I will mention, owns a cafe. Outside, it was cold enough to see your breath. It felt late, but it wasn't. Thanksgiving was like that. Seven felt like eleven. I forgot my gloves, Terrence said. Just keep your hands in your pockets, Ted said. He, on the other hand, needed his hands to take notes in his vandalism notebook. The police were always polite when he called in the day's damage. Three more trees cut down, another tree toilet papered, graffiti on a mailbox, Stickers on the stop signs that said, beneath the word stop, clinging to the past. But they had only come out a few times at the very beginning to have him file a report. 
Sometimes a police car drove through town at night. But what good did that do? Ted had suggested to the mayor that a volunteer force of residents take shifts monitoring the town since it was really too big a job for him alone, but she refused to add it to the November meeting agenda. Alternatively, he suggested a hotline for residents to call in anonymous tips, but this had not met with her approval either. It was Lucy who had, inadvertently, provided a platform for town residents to help when she asked residents to take a vote. Were they for the moratorium or against it? She took everything off the bulletin board and set out two bowls full of thumbtacks. Blue meant for and red against. At the end of the month, she would tally which side had the most tax and declare a winner. I love that passage. Uh, things get much more tense as the story goes along. Um, the cafe that Lucy runs in the community is kind of a focal point for everyone. And this bulletin board that is up in the cafe starts out as a kind of generic way of information sharing. And it turns it turns quite ugly. Um, is that fair to say? Yes. So her idea that people will just put up tax immediately goes awry. People start putting up nasty notes about people in the town, anonymous notes. So everything gets really ugly quickly. What I found fascinating about that is that uh, as, as things are becoming progressively more hostile, uh, we have the flip side. And there are actually moments when characters come to each other's rescue. Uh, there's a scene where Allison invites the displaced neighbors who have a mold issue in their problem, uh, in their mold issue in their home, and she asks them to come temporarily live with them. This doesn't sit well with her husband, Ted, who's not not fond of the new neighbors. Um, so the goal of community sanctuary doesn't go to plan. Is it fair to say that Allison's desire to nurture the neighbors actually had a little bit to do with the unraveling in her own home and family? I think it helps unravel things more. I th She invites them in, but she is doing what so many characters in the book do, which isn't communicating. Perhaps if she'd sat down with her husband and daughter beforehand, it could have been a smooth transition. They would have agreed how long the neighbors could stay there. But here again, it's somebody it, with good intent. She invites them to stay in the family home, but she hasn't cleared it with anyone. So it doesn't go as well as one would well, hope. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't change Ted's position that um, neighbors, are, neighbors are good people. <laughs> the new neighbors are good people. And um, so the story does become progressively more... Um, um, more tense. And I have to imagine that since this book has come out, people love to tell you their bad neighbor stories. There are so <laughs> many out there. <laughs> and that your email must just be populated with these real gems. I do, do you, like these stories. <laughs> do you so. have a favorite bad neighbor story? One of my favorite stories happened not far from where I live now in D.C. A neighbor in a different neighborhood was walking down the street and she saw that somebody, a stranger walking their dog, put the dog's poop in someone's trash can. So the person who lived in the community fished it out of the trash can and then yelled at the person walking the dog and said, we don't do that in our neighborhood. And apparently the dog walker got obnoxious. So the neighbor threw the poop at the guy's head. I don't know it was the guy, actually. But in the listserv, one of my favorite comments was, 
I like to think that we don't throw poop at people's heads in our neighborhood either. There was a listserv and this story showed up. That's where the story was showed up. Yep. That's amazing. And that's that's an urban story. That's not a suburban story. That's right. It happens everywhere. Neighbors are neighbors, no matter where you live. Well, that's true. Um, now, since the book has come out, do your neighbors who know you've written this book, do they have a fear that you're going to write about them? Do they think they're going to be the subject of your acid pen if one of they them, get on your wrong side? <laughs> one of them came to my reading at Politics and Prose the other night and she asked a question, and I could hear her muttering under her breath, I know I'm going to be a character in one of these books. So I think there's a little fear. <laughs> I think that's a, a fair guess. Can you talk about what you're working on now? Is that something not all writers like to discuss their next project? But I, I, I like to ask. I can say that it is another uh, suburban comedy that takes place in the Washington area. Different characters, different situation. But I think if you like this one, you'll like that one also. There you go. Well, I have a last question, and this is a question we ask of all our guests. Can you tell us about a book you love to recommend that no one has ever heard of or probably never heard of? I've been thinking about this question, and there's a book that many people know about, but I think probably younger people don't know about, called Mrs. Bridge. And it was written in the late 50s. It is about a suburban wife starting from when she gets married until she dies. And it's vignettes. And it's really a portrait of her. It's very funny. There's not much plot. Each story is self-contained. And she's not always likable, but it's a brilliant book. It's a book that I study. I just love it. Well, it sounds like a good companion piece to what you've written. Definitely. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I've not heard of Mrs. Bridge. Um, well, I want to thank you for coming. The novel is White Elephant. It's published by the Echo Imprint of HarperCollins, available everywhere books are sold. And Julie, tell us where we can find a little bit more about you and your speaking tour and and uh, where you're going next. If you go to my website, julielangsdorf.com, you'll find all of the events that I'll be going to. That's wonderful. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us on Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. Listen Wednesdays at noon on WERALP-FM 96.7 and find us on realfictionradio.com.